Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Virginia. Events over recent years have highlighted racial inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Here at Broad Talk, we recognise that the path towards true reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us, all the time. In that spirit, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record this podcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. The system is broken. I don't get the rules at all. How far can we work within a system that we need to get rid of? I think men feel somehow women's liberation is a threat to their manhood. And it is. Tragically, I couldn't give a shit whether you think... I have a right to speak up about anything or not. People who make revolutions get burnt. We started it here! Maybe, you know, I've got some sort of crazy speak up about it mental illness. Change takes time. Do you have any regrets? No. No matter how often I hear that opening sting with all its angry power, it still makes me smile and I hope it does you too. Hello and I'm Virginia Housker. It's so lovely to have your company for this very special series that we're bringing you in partnership with MOAD, the Museum of Australian Democracy housed in Canberra's old Parliament House where I've had the wonderful honour of guest curating a new exhibition on Australian women changemakers. And in this series, we dive into the personal stories and professional stories of some of those outstanding women. We poke around a little bit about what it means to be a changemaker and how they got to where they did. We talk about the challenges and the costs. So stick with us for the series as you're in for a feast of raw and very real and inspiring stories. And you can find us on all the usual places on social media, on Insta for Broad Talk at Broad Talkers. Um, check out our Facebook, Broad Talk or mine, Virginia Houseiger. You can find me on Twitter, Virginia House. And, of course, drop into our broadtalk.net website. If you subscribe there, you'll get a little newsletter from us every now and then and you'll find all the episodes, not just of this series, but all the preceding series as well. So today we're joined by someone I'm really looking forward to talking to, someone I've only met very briefly, Sally McManus. Sally is, of course, the Secretary of the ACTU. 
We only met very briefly on the day of the March for Justice rally held in 19... 19- uh, 2021 here in Canberra, and Sally, along with uh, Michelle, the president of the ACTU, were speakers along with myself. So it was a brief meeting, but what an exciting day that was. But what I want to say is Sally's bio actually doesn't tell us much about her. Her official bio says that she is the 10th secretary of the ACTU, but it doesn't mention the fact that she's in fact the first female secretary. It also tells us that she was leader of the ASU, the Australian Services Union, New South Wales, and that she started as a trainee organiser in 1994. It tells us that she's worked as a pizza delivery driver, a cleaner and a shop assistant, and that she studied philosophy. We also know that Sally is a bird watcher, a photographer, and a black belt in kung fu. Sally, welcome to Broad Talk. It's fantastic to have you here. Good day, Virginia. It's also good to be here. Look, I'm going to ask you, with that bio in mind, other than the fact that you're 51, what does I'm 50. I'm not 51. Oh. I'm sorry, I've already stuffed it up. I suppose I'm nearly nearly 51, yeah, I'll take it. Okay, got my counting wrong, sorry about that. But look, other than your age, um, what is it about you that your official bio doesn't tell us that is is something that you can share, something important about your identity? That's a hard question. I'm a vegetarian. I guess that's the only other thing I can say that's like a day-to-day thing that it would be anything other than I guess these days people see on social media and people see you on the media um, and, you know, people, because social media has been around for a while, like really with me is what you see is what you get. Like there's, there's you know, nothing else. Oh, I like sport a lot. Um, but, yeah, I don't think there's anything else that's too um, big or exciting that, that isn't already seen publicly. You're a runner. I just learned that this morning too. Um, You're also clearly a very, very hard worker who puts in long days, long hours, and someone who's clearly dedicated to your job. Do you do much outside your work? To be honest, no, not really. Like um, the bird watching or or, um, being in nature is like the one thing that's uh, the thing that I do to to clear my mind and that isn't to do with um, work. Uh, and also obviously you know exercise exercise in a way is part of like keeping fit but it's also a mental health thing like being Mm. I found that uh, regular running and all my well not all my life but since I was um, probably um, 19 I've done martial arts but those those things are part of I guess um, keeping fit but also maintaining discipline as well so yeah, I do work long hours in a high-pressure environment, so it is important to have, like, some outlets. Um, I definitely find that that's, that's essential in, in my job. Sally, you are the first person I've met who is a bird watcher, and I don't want to um, spend too much time on this, but I'm just fascinated. What is that about? I mean, I, I, it just seems so incongruous for someone – who, you know, I don't know, lives a really busy life and is a fast mover, um, to be a bird watcher. I mean, I know you've travelled the world photographing birds and, and bird watching. What's that about? Look, to be, it didn't start like I was a bird watcher. I wasn't one of those people who had a bird book when I was a, a kid and looked it up or anything like that. 
And for a while, I even resisted the, the title um, birdwatcher and some people try and call you a twitcher and things like that. I started off um, very close friends since I was a teenager and he he is, like he could name every single one and he and I would go on, you know, trips all the time and he'd be um, all the time talking about the birds and I bought a camera and it was through the lens of the camera that I became a bird watcher. and for me it's about the excitement of going out not knowing what you're going to find um having a target like so if you're going somewhere and you're looking for something that's really rare and you might spend like all day walking looking waiting trying to find this um rare bird and I suppose if we had things like leopards and tigers I'd be doing it with leopards and tigers <laughs> but it's exciting when you find them and it's exciting when you find like anything that's uh, a, a bit different um, and then being able the skill of being able to actually take the photos there's one thing to see the bird but it's almost like did it really happen if you didn't take a photo yeah, so uh, I, I enjoy the photography side of it and through photography I think I became a bird watcher. It's fascinating. Lions, I, I get. I get that. I think that would be exciting. Birds, I'm not so sure. But look, it, it, I find it fascinating that, that you do do that. I want to ask you this, though. You just mentioned that, you know, what you see is what you get with you. Let's go to when you first took up the role as Secretary of the ACTU, which, as I said, you're first woman to do that. And I want to um, bring you back to that famous now um, early interview you did, TV interview <coughs> on the ABC I think it was with Lisa Alice, where you you said something that was um, pretty, well, got you in a lot of trouble. You, you refused to condemn illegal industrial action when you were asked about, do you believe in the rule of law? And I'm just going to quote what you said. You said, look, I believe in the rule of law when the law is fair and the law is right, but when it's unjust, I don't think there's a problem with breaking it. Now, that led to, I must admit, I was listening at live at the time and thought, great, okay. I had a really good sense of who you were then and 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 that made sense to me. But it it smashed open the, the media headlines suggesting that you were basically inciting unionists to be lawbreakers. Um, indeed, Federal Minister said you were a lunatic. In retrospect, was that a mistake? Were you being just too blatantly Sally McManus there and, and not careful enough? I don't regret it one little bit. Um, I told the truth. I said something that I believe in, something that I live by, something that a whole lot of um, people that have been about um, challenging the powerful and have brought about change have, have always believed in because we've had to. Like when laws have been unfair and unjust and they've been designed to oppress um, people, people have had to challenge them. And the fact that in our country, um, we basically criminalise industrial action, like the right to strike, whereas most other countries in the world, and some of them have got in their constitution as like a fundamental right. It's a fundamental right recognised internationally that has to be protected, yet we don't do that in Australia. So I don't regret it one little bit. I would say the same tomorrow. Uh, I did not expect, though, like I had no idea whatsoever the reaction that it was going to get. Lots of people have said to me, oh, well, that was an interesting media strategy. I can see why you did it, et cetera, et cetera. And there was no media strategy to it. I just dealt with a question that was bowled up to me and answered it in a straight way. And it did lead to a week of front page screaming headlines from, you know, the Murdoch press and other parts of the press, but mainly the Murdoch press, 
who then sent, you know, camera, you know, paparazzi, not paparazzi, mm-hmm. but, you know, people to take photos of me outside, you know, um, in the ACTU office and follow me around and then to sort of like go through every bit of social media so that they could try and confect some story that I was some sort of, you know, radical monster. And this went on for, for a week. It was like a complete storm. So I wasn't expecting that. And, you know, then when it happened, it was so full on. And I guess I, a really wise person said to me, when, when you're in the middle of a storm, stand still. Uh, mm. And I wish I, they, I didn't act exactly know that at the time, but I, looking back, that's the advice I'd actually give to people if they're in that situation. What do you, what do you mean by that? How would standing still have changed things for you? Well, I, I did end up fair, staying fairly still anyway, um, but that wasn't like a conscious sort of okay, you know, uh, situation. It would just be, a, you know, what have I learnt out of that? Um, what it actually taught me was not to be afraid of the media and I'm really glad that I had that lesson on the very first day of being the ACTU secretary because effectively like the forces you know, that wanted to throw everything they could, including the government, like being told to resign on day one. On day well, one. Yes, I've got to say, that was pretty dramatic, I've got to say. That was, yeah, by, uh, that's a first as well. By, yeah, by prime ministers, by, of course, all the employer organisations. I think in a way they were hoping that they could put me back in, in my box and, and you know, have you, um, you know, retreat and that that would, um, you know, exactly what they wanted. Uh, but I just had no intention of doing any of that. Sally, I'm just curious as to know, you know, did did it did it worry you though? I mean, did you particularly when the federal minister called you a lunatic? Did you feel like, okay, I'm going to have to do some repairing here because you do have to work with government and you have to work with employers. You have to work with people who who obviously didn't like what you did, what you said. Uh, I did. It didn't worry me at all that Peter Dutton called me a lunatic. Uh, in fact, it was like just one of the swirling insults that was being thrown at the time. I didn't even um, hear it until a few days afterwards. And I thought, well, all these people, I saw them doing this for a purpose um, and to get me to back down. And I wasn't going to back down. And in a way, it was a test. And so it was about whether or not I could get through it, really. And I had a press club speech uh, booked for two weeks after, I think, this. There was a bit of a discussion about whether it should be cancelled or whether it should be, you know, put off. And I just said, look, there's no way that I'm going to be the leader of the trade union movement and hide, you know, no. Like, even though that's going to continue to be, you know, a big drama. I am going to do that press club speech and that day of the press club speech was the same. It was like the media all over you. Mm, mm. And in the end, after that, I got up and I explained what I said and why Mm. and um, what I believed in. And it was sort of like, okay, well, you've been through all of that. And I think in a way I sort of normalised, you know, some of those, you know, the thing that I said, you know, went from, oh, it's the worst thing in the world to people going, oh, yeah, actually, really, is it? that bad and uh yeah so I just think that um the good thing is is that I did I didn't worry every day like what the media was going to say because I thought well they've done their worst <laughs> uh, I want to ask you about style though because I think uh following that the the one of the well an important stakeholder for you, um, the head of the BCA, said you were different from other union leaders and suggested that uh that you opt for conflict and campaign building rather than problem solving and collaboration. Was that a fair call? 
Uh, well, Jennifer and I, she's the head of the BCA, actually get on um, well um, today. So I think that this was them not understanding me and understanding where we were coming from. I was just being honest and direct. That's what I was doing. And I'm sure that uh, a whole lot of business leaders would love, uh, you know, tame trade union leaders. And they certainly weren't going to get that from me. But to think that it's sort of like a deliberate strategy is wrong. Like I deal with the, the situation in front of us. And at the moment in Australia, you know, working people uh, have one of the, have the, lowest share of the nation's wealth that we've had since the 1960s like inequality is a massive problem wage growth is a massive problem and big business has never been more powerful so um, I'm just echoing the truth of what's going on and um, you know I continue to do that like with Jennifer but I but I, I would say that I you know I'm not speaking on her behalf but she would respect that I'm saying where we're coming from and not doing this as a strategy and also listen to the point of view of others too so I think that was a, an unsophisticated view of me at the time. You've mentioned uh, fairness. In fact, you wrote a, a small book on fairness for the um, Melbourne Uni Press as one of their uh, small book series. What is fairness as far as you're concerned? Is, is, is fairness innate? Is it something that's driven by our personal moral compass or do we need rules around fairness? And well, also, so just to add to that, if we do need rules, who gets to make them? Whose yeah. values are they based on? So going to the first part, I mean, fairness does start from a view that as humans we're all equal, like we're all equal in terms of we're all born equally human and that we all should get a fair go and be treated fairly um, and the goal of equality is um, one that's worthy because of that because if you believe that we're all equal um, to have situations where some people have a lot or some people are discriminated against and, and others aren't is is fundamentally unfair and do you need rules well of course you do because within this situation some people have power and some people don't and where people abuse that power they discriminate against people or they create societies that are fundamentally unequal it's a job of um, governments who are meant to represent everyone to take action to redress that power imbalance. So in the case of workers' rights, um, that's that's what worker, workers' rights are all about. Like if you had no workers' rights, of course, it would be the rule of the jungle and, you know, the, the strong would always um, win and in the end you'd, you'd have a, a terrible society. Um, so that's, that's why it's important to, if you believe in fairness and believe in inequality, to have, um, you know, structures that support that. When it comes to gender equality, and I ask you this again as the first female in the, in the role as Secretary of the ACTU, is gender equality about fairness? Is that <clears throat> perhaps the prime selling point for you? Well, of course it's about fairness. It's about, you know, the equality of all humans. So, you know, how, you know, how is that, how does that fit with uh, women having been paid less, having less opportunities, retiring with less money, um, not being considered equally for, for jobs, all of those things. It's, it's you know, fairness is just a shorthand way of talking about a whole lot of other fancy terms. But the other aspects <clears throat> that are brought into this argument around gender equality, particularly in terms of democratic representation, um, just the inability to uh, for societies to function well if women don't play a, a significant and equal part in public life, is that part of the discussion too as far as you're concerned or is it primarily just about fairness? 
Well, it's a flow on. Like if, if the principle is fairness, a flow on is that um, where women should be equally represented, fairly represented in this case because we're 51% equally represented in decision-making bodies and the basic um, idea that, you know, our decision-making bodies should reflect the people that they're making decisions about it is something that we should absolutely uh, insist on, not just aspire to, insist on. It's fascinating to learn that the 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 average union member now is female and I believe in her early 40s. It, does, does that mean that men are turning away from unions? Well, it's more to do with the structure of the workforce. Like there's the highest participation of women in the workforce than we've ever, ever had in the paid workforce in, in, in Western society. So that that's a fact. Uh, secondly, our biggest union is is the teachers union, uh, the nurses union. Sorry, uh, the nurses union. So they became our biggest union only about five years ago, uh, and followed by the teachers union. And there's been a big change in uh, the structure of our economy. And Australia has a very gender segregated workforce. Terribly, so. terribly, terribly. And also, of course, those sectors where women dominate are the lowest paid. Yeah, so it's not so much that um, men are turning away, it's just that women um, have not just taken up, they've overtaken and it's because those big professions, uh, nursing and teaching, are the dominant um, unions now uh, within the trade union movement. Okay, I want to talk to you a little bit more about gender equality within the movement itself, the trade union movement, but uh, we're going to take a short break and back in just a moment. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Sally McManus, gender equality within the ACTU, it hasn't always been a, a hallmark of trade unions, gender equality. Um, early on in your own career, I know that you were, you were, have, have spoken before about being easily dismissed as a, as a young woman. I think you were still, still in your teens actually when you uh, had a leadership role. And in fact, have spoken about how you were referred to as just a fucking girl. How did you manage that within the union movement? Did you return sexism with sexism or, or did you did you play it like the boys? What did you do? Oh, well, I mean, it's hard talking about like back in the day when you were very young and certainly I didn't have the confidence just to return sexism with sexism back then or even to sort of stand up and, you know, to say to, you know, these people, all these men that were more powerful to you directly, all the things that I would do now, you know, so... 
you know, that, 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 that was definitely the case. And the other thing is, is that, you know, in a way it was, it was a shock to be in, in some unions, uh, well, the union I was in at that time as a, as a young union organiser and to only, uh, have, you know, men around me. But then after a while you sort of got used to it. Well, I just learned something really important. And at that time too, I mean, I was a feminist and there was, in the union movement, there has been for a hundred years and there continues to be a very active feminist discussion that happens all the time. So within unions, but across unions. So there's, you know, union women have led like most of the, uh, the, the, the progressive women's movement in Australia the whole time we've had that movement. So unlike other workplaces and other organisations, I've had the privilege of being part of that. So Can the I thing have- like... Yeah. Sorry, but can I just ask you, I, I find that sort of at times, um, I don't know, there's a sort of a contradiction there because we also know that at times the union movement um, has harboured some real shocking sexist actually and, and some sexism and and we've seen cases of that just in the last couple of years um, with a, a – well, you know, a very high-profile case of a Victorian union leader who's still in the movement and still in a leadership role – so how do you reconcile that, though, that, that there is that what some would believe is an inherent sexism within the trade union movement? Well, I would say that that's no more than anywhere else, uh, except that the fight back about that's been more intense. So you think about it, the first woman leader of the ACTU was Jenny George, and that's 30 years ago. Like, that's a long time ago. Then very, very um, strong feminists. And you had Sharon Burrow, who's now the head of the whole world trade union movement. Australia has produced that mm. and is a strong feminist. They had Jed Carney. And now you've got two women leaders of the ACTU, myself and Michelle, both strong feminists. But below us, there's a whole like raft of um, leadership there. And it's not to say that like, you know, we're the largest, you know, fee paying movement in the country by far, like by far. And we reflect the whole of society. So it's inevitable that there will be people that are sexist or racist or a whole lot of things because it's a reflection of the overall society. But the difference is, is that there's a constant discussion about this and that there's 50% women on the ACTU executive. And we've had that way before. They've had it in parliament way before any corporate, um, you know, uh, any business, any big business that's got, that's got that. So I would say that, yes, we have these issues. The difference is, is that we are ahead, I think, of the curve, not behind the curve, and we're ahead of the curve because there's like an active um, feminist um, consciousness within the trade union movement. If there's been such strong um, feminism within the movement, and look, I accept, certainly accept what you say, nevertheless, why is it, though, that that those um, feminist-dominated industries remain the lowest paid. I mean, I know you've been very, very active, particularly in the community sector, um, in, in getting pay rises. But, you know, let's face it, it's it's women still, and we've been talking about this for decades or certainly all the time I've been a journalist for the last 30 years, about these pathetically low-paid industries being dominated by women. And despite that feminism within the ACT, you haven't been able to nudge those wages anywhere near where they should be? Well, it's also got a lot to do with the structure of those jobs. So if you think about the, we talked before about uh, our workplaces being very gender, our profession has been very gender segregated in Australia. So 
the ones that are dominated by men are in industries that are for-profit industries where if they take strike action, business immediately feels the power of that um, and there's a different bargaining power that comes when that happens as opposed to if you are a community services worker and you work in the homeless um, services, if you stop work, who suffers? Well, it's the, uh, you know, people in homeless uh, who are homeless and that those who are in need. So, and it and do really, you know, big business care about that? Probably not, right? So you would have to stop work for a very long time to achieve the same outcomes you'd have if you're in, um, let's say, you worked on the wharves. So mm. you've got to recognise that to start off with. Same with nurses and same with teachers. It's not grinding the economy to a halt by using some of those options that working people have got. So I don't think it's fair to say to those workers, those women in those industries that you've got to recognise, first of all, that they don't have the same structural power. So they then need to um, organise in different ways as they are. So at the moment you can see huge um, strike waves of aged care workers, of teachers, of nurses, and you look at the faces of those workers that are Mm. um, taking that action. They're all young women and migrant young women, it's really fantastic to see. And I look at those faces and I just know that's the future of the trade union movement. Sally, on power, uh, let's just talk a little bit about that. And this is going to sound like an odd question, but where is power located in you? Obviously, you've got a lot of power. Is it is it as a result of your role as head of the ACTU? Or do you feel like you have an innate power anyway? My power comes from how well organised unions are. So not from me, but from workers. And so me sitting in this, me as an individual have no power. Me sitting in this chair as ACTU secretary has some power, but not much more. The extent of power that I may or may not have depends on how organised you know union members are uh, towards a common goal that we're pushing. So if I'm pushing for something uh, and I'm doing that by myself, that's that's not going to get us anywhere. It's only been where you can marshal the forces of the whole trade union movement behind something and we're all pushing one direction. That's, that's where that power comes from. How personally do you feel responsible for restoring faith and membership and power to the union movement? Because we know that, that in fact, unions are or the union movement is much, much smaller now than it was certainly when I first started as a journalist and and it was in the 80s. Uh, Unions were very, very powerful, in fact, huge, and and constant media stories were being done about union action. Uh, Not so now, not so now at all. And, in fact, the number of Australian workers who are members of unions is probably at the lowest it's ever been. So is is this something very personal for you? I take 100% responsibility, like full total responsibility for um, what you talked about, about unions uh, growing, but also the reputation of, of the union movement. So that doesn't mean that, and that's a hard thing because I can't control everything. So, mm. but nevertheless, I take 100% responsibility, but I take a long view. So it's not that within the time that I sit in the chair I've got now that I can turn around what has been decades and decades of union decline um, for a whole lot of reasons beyond our control. It's that by the time I leave this chair, I have to have built the platform for whoever takes over afterwards to for, to have that happen. So uh, I need to leave um, the union movement uh, in a 
better position than, than when I left and with the platform to grow. When you first became ACTU secretary and being the first woman, Jed Carney said a really interesting thing about you. She, she told a journalist that she said you haven't changed to meet the times. She's known you for a long time and that you haven't changed to meet the times, but the times have caught up with Sally. And she went on to say Sally's just perfectly in the right place at the right time not only nationally but globally, what was she saying about you? How did, what did you take that to mean? I think that might go back to um, what the BCA leader said at the time too, that I was different to the other leaders. I mean, I think it is just that because I was saying directly um, what we believed and I'll continue to say directly the truth of the situation in a time where of growing inequality and where our workers have less power and less rights than they ever have, which we just talked about, about just not being afraid of saying that and not being afraid of saying upsetting people. Um, not because you're going out to upset people or you're going out to create conflict. It's just, you know, that when sometimes you tell the truth, it does upset people, as we've seen. Mm, so mm, mm. I think that I think that's what Jed was talking about. And she's right. Like, I haven't changed. Um, I've not tried to. The only thing I've changed since being ACTU secretary is wearing makeup more often. <laughs> I must admit, on your very first interview, I noticed you did have a bit of makeup on. I thought, oh, that's unusual. Well, it's Sorry, Darren. Unusual for a, a secretary of the ACTU. How do you ignore the criticism, though? I mean, there, there has been criticism, and I don't mean just criticism of how you're doing your job, but, I mean, really sexist, awful stuff online in particular. How do you manage that? Do you just develop a, a really – do you, or do you naturally have a steely smile? Well, you can't be like a union representative, you know, for as long as I have, which I don't know how long now, like 28 years, and then not – be tough and it wasn't that I was some tough person when I started it's just that you, you learn it because like you're constantly in situations that where, where you're representing and standing with workers that are uh, that are in battles and you don't win all of those in fact you probably lose way more than you win and so you're used to like being the underdog like all the time you are and all the time you've got to um, just deal with that situation of, of conflict and, and people will, especially when you're taking on people who, who have a lot to lose, they'll throw whatever they've got at mm. you. So I guess by the time I became ACTU secretary and social media came around and you, people are throwing, you know, what they do at you, like lots of sexism, you know, lots of, you know, terrible comments, is that I just don't care. Like I honestly do not care. And I could not care less what those anonymous people say because it doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is what union members think and what, you know, I always imagine the people behind me, like the faces of the people behind me, and I know they support me and that's what matters. The other thing is, is I just have like a really strong thing about, it's like you've got a certain amount of energy in your day and in your life. And if I'm giving any of that energy, any of your life force, to being upset or paying attention to some horrible sexist troll on Twitter, mm. well, they're, they're eking away at that energy and I want all of it to go towards what we're trying to achieve for working people and none of it to go to them. What makes you uh, second-guess yourself or when, when do you doubt yourself? I would think that most of us doubt ourselves at some time, even great change makers and movement builders. I think there's moments like... Um, you know, often that you do, that you think, you know, 
not so much yourself, although sometimes you do you do do that too, but am I pursuing things in the right way? Like is my strategy right? Perhaps um, I'm going down this track too far. And because we're such a collective movement, there's this constant sort of discussions happening like within the leadership of unions around and what to do. So I sort of feel as though, well, I know, and it's just so normal and natural that you've got this, okay, whenever you get to a point where you're not sure or you're doubting, I basically will spend half the day on the phone talking to people and out of like the collective decision, then we decide to go forward. So at times where I sort of get to that point, that's what I do. If it's an issue of personal doubt, again, I think I go to people that I trust, like people that I think that will tell me the truth and not not you know tell you what they think you want want to hear and I have to say most of the people close to me do just tell you directly um and that usually they slap me out of it <laughs> I like that they slap you out of it but li- not literally obviously no no no, no I know <laughs> what you mean um I, I want to ask you about how creative you think or how creative you have to be sometimes in finding solutions to things but I just want to preface this by a little story if you don't mind um because it's a, a favorite story of mine when I first started work as a journalist, the biggest rallies I ever went to, and in fact still the biggest rallies in my life have been union rallies in the in Melbourne in the 1980s. Uh, BLF was huge, the Builders Labourers Federation. Um, Norm Gallagher was the head of that. And at one stage, my school, my old school, um, which was a Catholic, run by Catholic nuns, a girls' school, was having some building done and um, the union was went on strike and that building sat un, untouched for a long, long time, for months. It, I think it was a new science block and the nun who ran my school, who was all of four foot tall, got in the car with two of the other nuns, drove down to Trades Hall to meet with Norm <laughs> Gallagher, asked to meet with him. No, she didn't have an appointment but she'd like to meet with Mr Gallagher. He sat down with her. They had a cup of tea. She explained that this hold-up of the building was just not acceptable anymore and the girls needed this science block. And he finished off the meeting, so the legend goes, saying, don't you worry, Sister Pat, we'll get, I'll get the boys onto it. The very next day, truckloads of workers turned up and that science block got built. Now, that was a beautiful, well, beautiful solution to a big problem, but a kind of creative one too. Um, does that kind of thing still happen? Well, I think that it shows that Norm Gallagher was um, more more scared of your nuns than he was of, you know, the most powerful capitalist in Australia at that time. Well, but, she was very formidable, i got to say, but she was gorgeous. <laughs> but honestly, she was so tiny and, but boy, oh boy, she uh, she knew her football and she um, she knew her way around. She yeah. sounds like an awesome union rep. Like, she sounds like you definitely want to have her represent you. I think that just shows too about um, how there's more of a connection to the community and, and, you know, you think about the Green Band movements, a whole lot of things that uh, in the end, you know, the nun and and that school and and Mm. those builders, like, are all the same people really. Mm. That wasn't your question though. What was your question? Oh, the question was about being creative, creative solutions. I mean, you know, you you work within, um, we've talked about rules and the fairness and and the rules around fairness, et cetera. Do you find sometimes you have to really be very creative? Yeah, especially like, you know, you always find yourself, you've got to um, change people who don't want to change. So, 
and you're usually in the situation where you don't have as much power as them, not always, but usually. And so you've got to use everything you can, but not only that, you've got to shake things up. So disrupting, you know, the way that they would expect uh, you to fight. So, for example, when uh, I was leading the ASU, we were uh, organising community workers and they were fighting for equal pay and the employer organisation, you know, was just saying no to everything. And we organised a rally of uh, domestic violence workers were the main sort of group leading this uh, onto their offices um, to deliver to them, you know, a request um, to reconsider. They called the riot police, like <laughs> the riot police to, you know, these women, um, domestic violence workers, and they were so outraged. And so what we all did instead was bring um, flowers, um, flowers and presents, and then we presented them to the right police and then to the employers to ask them to reconsider, and it really sort of disrupted that. Some of the really fantastic things, I think, too, and it's becoming a bit of a tradition uh, in our country, I think, if you look at the recent um, strikes that are happening with, with teachers and with nurses, read the signs read the signs mm. that they've made mm. and they've done. It's sort of taking the internet memes to um, mm. on-the-ground action and uh, some of those are so creative. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. But also you've got to think about what is actually going to move your decision makers. So creative things are great and, and if they expect you to do something the same way all the time, they're going to be prepared for it. But if you do something different, they're not going to be. But it's got to be something that's effective. Sally, I've asked you previously about role models and you've mentioned Sharon Burrow and you, as you pointed out, she's now a hugely powerful and significant union leader uh, globally and not bad for a woman who was formerly a country teacher, I think. You've also mentioned Jenny George, um, both those women previously presidents of the ACTU and you spoke of Margaret Jones. Now, Margaret is not someone I knew. Tell us about Margaret. Well, Margaret was... One of my best mates, uh, unfortunately, she's um, passed away but and she was 95 when she did and we were friends, very good friends for probably 30 years, um, you know, went away on holidays together. Um, I would spend the time that I was ACTU secretary flying up from Sydney all the time to spend time with her. Um, she loved playing the pokies and wanted days out so I would take her out and do that. But, you know, sometimes, I, you know, I took her to Fiji and places like that too. Um, she was a feminist um, way before it was ever popular to do so. Also a lesbian, you know, way before, you know, that was, you know, acceptable in any terms. And she started going to the gym when she was 65, 65. Um, yeah, and um, did that until into her 90s too and developed these biceps that you would really um, be jealous. I was jealous of them. And so she, just a very close friend, and the thing is I took from her, like, all the things that she faced in her life, all the prejudice, all the hardships on all these levels like class, uh, obviously gender, all the homophobia and, you know, just how tough she was. And, uh, yeah, so I took a lot of inspiration from her. What an extraordinary woman and a, a beautiful uh, note, I guess, to finish on. I could go on talking to you for ages, Sally, but unfortunately we will have to leave it there. But um, a beautiful memory of Margaret Jones. Thanks so much for giving us the time that you have, and I know you, your schedule is incredibly busy, so I really appreciate the time. It's been, it's been fascinating, really fascinating. And thank you to all of you who've stayed with us Um don't forget, you can jump on to broadtalk.net, uh, send us an email at hello 
hello at broadtalk.net and uh, keep the conversation going and join us again for the next in this series. It's been fun and we're learning so much about these incredible uh, Australian women change makers. So until next time, don't forget, keep talking. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 